World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the AmeriChicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All of these shows are archived there, as well as I am the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter. Um, Be sure and like and follow me. I'd greatly appreciate that. And uh, this show precipitated from a trip that I took with a group. We took four D-Day veterans back to Normandy in 2016, and we returned saying we, we must capture these stories. Uh, these guys were just 17, 18, 19 years old. They're now in their 90s, and their stories, each of them is personal, uh, and they're so important to preserve for history. So today... Oh, my gosh. I am so excited to talk with Dan McBride. He was um, one of the guys with the 101st Airborne. They are famous. The 502nd Parachute Infantry Regiment. He jumped in at Normandy. He jumped in at Marka Garden in Holland. And uh, then he was also at uh, the Battle of the Bulge. So, Dan McBride, it is a thrill to get to talk with you. Oh, thank you. Okay, so let's start kind of at the beginning. Where were you, Dan, when you heard that uh, Pearl Harbor had been bombed? When I heard what? I'm that, sorry. That Pearl Harbor had been bombed. Where were you when you realized we were getting into the war? When I first joined the Army, you mean? Yeah, let's go ahead and start there. That'll be great. Uh, I was, lived in Conneaut, Ohio, and I was always afraid of heights. And... Uh, my dad always told me that uh, fear is uh, natural, you know. And when I was, uh, see, I joined the Army to try to get over the fear. And when I was standing in the door of a C-47, 1,500 feet over Fort Benning, I was getting more natural all the time. <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah, I managed to overcome it. And uh I was assigned to the F Company, 502nd Parachute Infantry, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And uh, we sailed for Europe on uh, the 3rd of, De- of Je- September, 1943. And we got to England October 19th, which was 44 days, four days longer than it took Columbus. <laughs> what? But we we landed in Liverpool, and we were stationed down by Hungerford, England. So did you do a lot of training there? A lot of night jumps and everything. Okay. A night jump, I mean, that's totally different than jumping in, you know, during the day. But you were preparing for D-Day, I guess, right? Yeah, well, we, we did a, more night jumps than we did day jumps because, uh, you know, that's what we were going to do when the, when the big one come. And... Uh, it's uh, interesting. You learn to climb down trees you didn't climb up, but outside of that, I, we, uh, we were, see, the 101st was formed on the, on the 16th of August, 1942, and I joined it in November of 42. So, uh, we was one of the original guys. Wow. You know, uh, I was over in Normandy in 2016, and one of our guys that we were with was uh, one of the 101st Airborne. And you guys are still revered over there. Uh, and I, you've taken several trips over to Europe, haven't you? Yes, ma'am. I can go back every year for, to a celebration at D-Day. Are you going to go this year for the, over there. Are you going to go this year for the 75th? Yes, ma'am. I sure am. Oh. This is the 75th anniversary. They got a big, big deal planned over there for this year. You know, Dan McBride, what was so interesting to me is the people of Holland, the people of Normandy, uh, they they revere you guys like rock stars, uh, inviting you into their homes and, um, you know, wanting your autograph. It, it is something to behold. Yes, it is. It surprised me. See, I had a bad situation. See, like... When I was a kid, I, well, we jumped in Normandy. I was uh, 20 years old. And uh, we was in there seven hours before the invasion started, and we were inland. And uh, the people didn't know if we were there to stay or if we were just a raid. So they avoided us because 
if the Germans found out that they'd been helping an American, they'd execute their whole family. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't realize that at the time. I thought that they didn't want us. That was the opinion I had. So I wouldn't go back for 65 years. Wow. But every day, every year, my buddy Mark Brando would take and keep get me to go back. And I said, oh, hell, I ain't going back. They didn't want me. So I didn't go. But I finally went about 2012, and I, I couldn't have been more surprised in my life. I was just, they were just the opposite. They adored us. <laughs> Well, they had been um, so, uh, uh, I mean, they there wasn't food. They'd been really abused by the Germans for four years. And so, uh, you know, I know that they were glad to see you generally, but, uh, yeah, they probably didn't know what to do exactly. So let's start, let's go ahead and let's talk about these uh, parachute jumps. So parachute infantry means that you guys jump in and then you're infantry. And, and let's talk about this, being there for seven hours before the invasion began. Where did you well, end up when you jumped in? Yes, ma'am. Our job was to knock out the guns and, and the crews covering U- Utah Beach. Okay. And uh, to secure all the roads leading up from the beach, and they, they hold all the bridges so the Germans couldn't blow the bridges. You know, but our job was to take these guys out in order to protect the, the 4th Infantry Division that landed on, Norm- on Utah Beach. And... Uh, they did a pretty good job of it because their casualties were very light. And ours weren't as bad as we thought we were going to be, but it was bad enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, see, my own personal deal, I, I started out, I was a sniper, and I had a, a rifle, an old Spring, Springfield rifle was too long to jump with, so I had it in a bundle underneath the plants. I had to carry one of those useless folding stock carbines on the jump. When I jumped, just as I was getting out the door, the plane rolled sideways and it threw me out the door head first. And when the chute opened, you know, first thing you do, you look up and check the chute. Well, I looked up and I saw the ground, and oh, I looked no. down and I saw my chute. Now, I'd never been to France before, and it didn't look right to me. See, my left foot was hung up in suspension lines, and I'm hanging upside down. And when I saw what, what it was, the minute, second I saw what it was, I bent over to try to crawl up my leg. And just as I bent over, I slammed into the ground. And it knocked me cold. And I don't know if I laid there for 10 seconds, 10 minutes, or an hour. I have no idea. But all of a sudden, I came aware of the fact that I'm laying in knee-deep wet grass and everything hurt. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I got oriented finally. And I moved off in the direction I thought I was supposed to go, but I'd lost my compass on the jump. And so I, the only incident that happened in the next four hours is I scared a herd of cattle. I didn't see anybody until it was just starting to get daylight. And the first one I run into was a German, and we didn't get along too well, and I ended up with his gun. Uh-huh. And I finally met up with one of my buddies, and we got, we moved out, we got over to a blacktop road, and somebody hollered out, flash, and we said, thunder. They said, welcome. And it was the lieutenant and two guys from the 82nd Airborne. And I said, lieutenant, where in the hell are we? And he said, well, after studying my map and looking around here, I think, now I'm not sure, but I think we're someplace in Europe. <laughs> well, that kind of narrowed it down a little bit, you know, but... but uh, he took off, and, and uh, my buddy Gringer and I sit down in a ditch alongside the road. And I uh, just reaching for a cigarette, and by this time it's getting fairly light. And you can see a 36 Ford drifting down the road with no engine running, just drifting slowly. And we thought it was a French underground, but uh, it wasn't. It was, when it got close enough, we could see the silhouette of a German helmet. So my buddy he took, the, or took the driver out, and... The car went in a ditch, and the back door popped open, and somebody, some crowd jumped out reaching for a pistol, and I pulled up this German gun, and I pulled the trigger, and went off four times and quit. But all four of them hit him, I think. Wow. Anyway, the lieutenant come running back, find out what the shooting's about, and he see the car, so we all, all five of us got in the car, and we drove back up the road the way it came from. We go up there, we see a town, a town sign that says Bootville. 
which is about in a straight line about 10 miles from where we're supposed to be. So we turned around and drove back down the road and drove approximately five or six miles before we ended up meeting a bunch of guys in the 82nd Airborne. One of them had a broken leg, so we gave them the car and we took off. Finally got back to where he's supposed to be in the first place on the evening of D-Day, so I didn't accomplish much. But uh, the rest of our outfit did. They took out the guns that were covering it, and they took care of the crews, and everything went on pretty good. Well, and uh, so uh, one of our, our my friend that actually connected us, Joe Conway, he said to be sure and ask about this story of your lieutenant and the bayonet. Oh well, that was a that was a kind of funny deal. I was see on the tenth, no, twelfth of June, we took the town of Carentan, and soon as they took it, they had a bayonet charge there, but that didn't amount to too much for me. But anyway, they took us on a patrol, and they voted and elected me as first scout. So we got around way behind the German line, and. Uh, well, there was no lines, actually, but we got behind where the Germans were, and uh, I was going along a, a, a fence, a hog wire fence alongside the road that had the grass going up, and the rest of the guys were on a, a big hedgerow that came in. Anyway, I was alongside the road, uh, just getting ready to cross the road, and I could hear hobnails coming down the road. Well, we didn't use hobnails. See, the Germans did. So I hunched down and had about... I would say between 60 and 80 German paratroops walked by so close I could have reached through the fence and touched them. Oh, my gosh. After they got by, the lieutenant come running up, and he says, tell me to go across the road and see what's over there. So I went across the road, and there was nothing there, so I motioned him over, and he he said, I'm going to send the guys over one at a time. and have them spread out along this road, and we'll get any more Germans to come along. We'll bushwhack them, see. Well, anyway, the first guy come across, and then the second guy, and he says, who's standing in the road down there? And I said, I don't know. You know, and I was talking about that, and this guy we was talking about come up and behind me and touched me on the shoulder, see, and here I turned, and he saw the eagle on my shoulder, the 101st eagle, and he let squawk and jump back. Here was a German paratrooper. Oh, my God! He had a rifle across his arms, and he jumped back. He started pulling his gun around. Well, mine is already around there, so I just pulled the trigger. And he went down. The lieutenant come running across the road. What's the shooting about? And he saw the, the dead German laying there, so he took took my rifle, hit a bayonet on, and he bayoneted the German. Wow. Well, anyway, I, he took his hand, me my rifle back, and I went out and run around on the patrol. And I come around behind the, his house in Hedgerow, and I saw a guy laying on the ground. I thought it was an American. He had the round helmet, you know. And I got within about 20 feet of him, and he says, Wes is loose. He pulled up his gun, and he, we both pulled the trigger, and his gun went bang, and mine went click. And his bullet went through my arm and cut a groove across the front of my jacket and went out under, underneath my arms. And, you know, <laughs> and uh, I grabbed the grenade and... <laughs> through it, and I turked her off running to get away from the grenade, and, but uh, I, I knew I was hit, but I didn't know where, you know, but anyway, that was, that was about, I got uh, evacuated the next day, but uh, anyway, we got back to England, they was having big ceremonies, you know, mm-hmm. and they got this one that says, Lieutenant Banker, with utter disregard for his own safety, took an enlisted man's rifle and led a bayonet attack against the German positions, eradicating it. And he got the Silver Star. Uh, yeah. That's not quite the so, way it happened, huh? Yeah, so I take this metal business with a whole salt shaker. I guess you do. So, um, <laughs> hey, so Dan McBride, you guys are the sc- Screaming Eagles. That is what the 101st Airborne is known as, right? That's right. That's right. And the 502... Our, our regimental insignia is the skull, bat wings, and parachute. You know, before the mm-hmm. before Normandy, they, they called it the skull and bat wings. After Normandy, it was officially named the Widowmaker. And if you ever wanted to buy one, that's what you asked for, the Widowmaker. 
Okay. Okay. So now, is that pretty much uh, you were wounded then at Normandy? You go back to England to recuperate then? Yeah. I'll tell you another thing to go along with that. Here, it was about five years ago, I was over there in Normandy, and a guy came up to me and started speaking to me in German. And I couldn't understand him, but my buddy could speak French and so could the German. We communicated that way and said he'd been in the German 6th Parachute Division. He'd been wounded on June 12th in Normandy by a guy from the 101st Airborne. Well, in the 101st Airborne, I was wounded on June 12th in Normandy by a guy from the German 6th Parachute Division. We ended up with our arms around each other, and now every year when I go to Normandy, he comes with whole, brings his whole family from Germany and we meet up. Oh my gosh! It's just a sideline. <laughs> you, know, you know what? I just I just got chills when you told me that story. That is uh, that is quite a story. Um, well, that's that's proof the war is over. Well, that is proof that the war is over. So we're going to go to break here. I, this is Kim Munson with the Americhicks World War II Project. I am talking with World War II veteran Dan McBride with the 101st Airborne, the 502nd Parachute Infantry Regiment. Before we do that, though. March Madness. Tomorrow night is the final game for the NCAA. And Hooters Restaurants is my sports headquarters. The Nuggets, they made the uh, playoffs. The Avs, maybe. And Major League Baseball is underway. So Hooters is the place to watch all the games. Wednesday is Wing Day. All the wings you can eat for fourteen ninety nine. So be sure and try their smoked wings. They're delectable and only half the calories. And did you know that Hooters Wings can fly? You can actually have them delivered right to your front doorstep. When I have the girls over on Wednesday nights, I order the Hooters new smoked wings, and the girls love them. So order your Hooters wings to go, have them delivered to your front door, or go over to Hooters and watch all the games there. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. And let them know that you know the Americhicks. So this is Kim Munson, and we will be right back. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Uh, I have on the line with me Dan McBride. He is a World War II veteran, a paratrooper. And uh, he jumped in at Normandy. We just heard his stories there. And uh, then he also jumped in at Operation Market Garden in Holland and then was involved in Battle of the Bulge. And uh, so these are just fascinating stories. It's such an honor to get to talk with you, Dan McBride. Thank you. You're welcome, ma'am. You're welcome. Okay. So uh, D-Day has occurred, and uh, the Allies now have a toehold in uh, in Europe. And so one of the next battles that you got, you jumped in at, uh, well, you've, you're wounded. So you're back in Britain. How? What was your recovery like? How did that go? There was no problem. It was just a bullet hole through the arm, you know, and it just... Uh... Uh, I thought they were going to put a Band-Aid on it and send me back in, you know, but uh, they sent me to England, and I had to go to the hospital there, but I was only there for three or four days. I come back to where the camp was, and uh, the first sergeant had been wounded, and he was there too, so I, he gave me some, a pass to go to Edinburgh, Scotland, and I did up there for to recuperate. But I had to go back into combat to rest up. But anyhow, uh, <laughs> uh, we we uh, did a lot more training and got a lot of replacements in in England. And then uh, they come out and they says, "Well, we got to jump up in Holland." They said, "It's going to be a short one. All you got to do is do you're going to jump four miles behind the, the German front lines and open up all the roads, and the British are supposed to attack at the same time." According to plan, you'll make contact with the British within four hours of your jump. After the British get by and get it consolidated, you'll be relieved. That was what they told us. Uh-huh. So what well, happened? Anyway, we took off. I was By this time, I'd been promoted to machine gunner. Okay. And I was carrying a 1986 machine gun in a leg bag along with two boxes of ammunition. And the gun itself weighs 42 pounds. So I had quite a load on my leg. I couldn't walk with it, so I had to jump first. No, so anyway, you jumped we, in with all that, or, or did that come under a different parachute? Or did you jump in with all that stuff? Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, see, it was a specially designed bag, British idea. And uh, it weighed altogether probably around 60 pounds. And it had it hanging on your right leg. But the, the strap went up and hooked on the bottom of your the bottom of your chute, 
and there was a, a rip cord on your leg, and you pulled it after the chute opened. You pulled that, and it dropped this a bag, dropped down and hung below you about 15 feet. Worked really good, about the best landing I ever made. Okay. And we jumped right in broad daylight. And you could see the battle going on when he was hanging in the air on the way down. You know, we were that close. And as uh, soon as we ended down, we attacked the town of St. Old Road because there was some, a bridge there and the highway went through it. We, our battalion did that and uh, uh, 506 took Eindhoven, the town of Eindhoven, which is right at the British lines. And uh, anyway, we had some battle doing that. Then they, they sent our third battalion to attack the town of Best. And Army Intelligence, now there's two words that do not fit together, <laughs> but Army Intelligence said that there were 300 men, 300 Germans in this town. So they took our battalion, about, at normal strength, about 400 men, and they attacked. Well, they took the third battalion first. They attacked, and they're getting, getting shot up bad, you know. So uh, they called, Colonel Cole was their commander. He, he called, he also led a bayonet attack in Normandy, he was put in for the Congressional Medal of Honor. But anyway, we, he was called for air support. So these British Typhoon fighters come in and start strafing us instead of the Germans. Mm-hmm. So somebody had to put a panels out, so Colonel Cole did that. Instead of asking somebody else to do it, he put the panels out, and he's laying the last one down when a sniper got him. And uh, anyway, the third battalion was getting beat up, so he took our second battalion, that's D and F Company, and we attacked, too. Well, that was about the worst battle that we did, we'd been in. I was shooting a machine gun that lay in my belly, and we suckered us in, and they opened up from three sides on us, you know, and... I'm banging away at a machine gun. The bullet come in, hit the side of the gun, ricocheted back, and bent the receiver in behind the bolt, and that killed the machine gun. So I rolled over, and I'm trying to get it unjammed, and a bolt went through my pocket and hit my canteen, and my best buddy got hit and fell across my leg. And I went over, and I put a bandage on him, but he died. I took his rifle. My machine gun was no good. I took his rifle and fell back to a bridge back there. Make a long story short, we fought them all day, and they finally surrendered. They was trapped against the Wilhelmina Canal, and they couldn't retreat. So they surrendered. And we <laughs> told them to come to here with a hand up, you know, and, and here come a column of fours. And I thought, geez, it must be, looks like 900 of them. That's what it looked like to me. But I found out later the actual number was 1,462 prisoners we took after fighting them all day with 300 men. Wow. You know. But uh, then we went on. We, we held the road open. We were supposed to make contact with the British within four hours. It was the second day before we saw the first one. In the meantime, we're holding the road open. The Germans are counterattacking, so we have to attack again and open it up again. And then this convoy of British trucks went by, three of them, and they all waved at us when they went by, you know. And they got past us a little ways, and about a half hour later, we looked up and we saw a big cloud of smoke and a lot of shooting up there. So we run up, and here are these trucks, same three trucks were pulled off the side of the road, all on fire. And dead British soldiers laying all over the place, and there's little teat pots boiling. The Germans are laid up there, watched them get out of their trucks and start making tea, and they attacked them and wiped them out. But uh, that always got me, because these guys are supposed to be heading for Arnhem to protect their own men, and they have to stop for tea. That, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Now, Operation Market Garden, that's what we're talking about right now. And that was memorialized in the World War II movie, A Bridge Too Far. And Montgomery, the British commander, was kind of in charge of that. And, and there are many that think he made some mistakes. What's your opinion on that, Dan McBride? Yeah, well, they, <laughs> well we uh, kind of lost patience with the British because... Anyway, they kept us there for 74 days, which are two and a half months in continuous combat. 
but I was lucky enough to get hit on the 28th of October. I got was on a patrol. I was carrying another machine gun, and we was on a patrol behind the German lines. And the artillery shell come in. I, I heard it coming, and I start running ahead. And it was going to be close, and hit behind me, and blew me off this dike. And I had this 42-pound machine gun come spinning down, and landed right on my ankle, and crashed the bones in it. And I was, like I say, we were behind the German lines. And this medic we had with us and said, "You want morphine?" I said, "No, I don't know morphine. You know, go to sleep back here." So he took a needle, shot it through my boot into my leg. You know, Novocaine. Novocaine. I had to walk about probably four miles at least on a broken ankle to get out of there. And they put me in a British two-wing, two-engine passenger plane called the de Havilland Rapide, and they flew me to Brussels, Belgium, put me in a Hunnish in a British hospital. And another guy from the 101st was hitting the shoulder, and he was in the plane with me. We both went to that hospital. And they... Fix this up, you know. They put a cast on my leg and everything else, you know, and, and uh, they wouldn't transfer for me as out. Wouldn't transfer us to American Hospital. So we asked them what they were going to do with us. And they said they're going to put us in a replacement depot. They figured no way. You had a cast on, and they were going to put you in the replacement depot. Yeah, they're going to put us in a replacement depot. They said. So we took off the two of us. We took off. We got on examination trucks coming back in the front line, and they told us we'd going to be relieved and sent back to Reims. Well, we thought they'd already been relieved, so we rode these trucks back to Reims. We got there, we reported to the 18th Airborne Corps headquarters, and it was uh, General uh, Ridgeway was our was the commander, and he he said we told him we were going over to help in the hospital. He said, I don't blame you a bit. <laughs> don't blame me at all. He says, you're going to be down by Mormelon, France. So he put us down there. And we, it was another three weeks before the outfit come back. So I spent three weeks sitting in a big big barn by myself with a sorting mail, waiting for these guys to come back. When they come back, they took the cast off my leg the 10th of December. The Germans broke through the 16th, and we stuck us in a bastone. But, uh, yeah, that uh, was a long, long session. Yeah, 70, in Holland, you know, if you dig down very far, you hit water because it's all underwater, you know. Uh-huh. And we'd lay in the mud there watching those, watching those silver bombers go over, you know, and figure, geez, another hour those guys would be back in England having a cool beer. And <laughs> you'd still be laying there in the, the mud, right? in the mud. Wow. So seventy. So they told you it was going to be four hours. It ended up being seventy-four days. Yeah, uh, and right. and um, so yeah. when the guys got back, is that is that really kind of the end of your experience in Market Garden? Then, yes, ma'am. That's the end of my experience. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We, I went from seventeenth October to seventeenth of September to twenty-eighth of October before I got hit. So. I had enough to suit me. I'm sure. Is there any other stories that you want to tell us about the Battle of Market Garden that comes to mind, Dan McBride? Oh, yeah. We had a lot of funny things happen. You know, like uh, we was at one one place, we had an outpost in a dike. You know, we was on, there was a road on top of the dike, and we had a machine gun set up firing across the road. We had dug it on the side, you know, and they had a British artillery observer with us. See, and there was a culvert under another dike right nearest, and an old billy goat was around there grazing. See, and this what we called the we heard some tanks moving out way out in front of us, so we called for some uh, artillery support. So this we had this British artillery observer with us, and he had a radio, so he radioed back a bunch of coordinates, you know, and and this one battery always shot short, one battery. It was a British, you know, and the guns were about eight miles behind us and shooting about 200 yards out ahead of us. And anyway, we heard the guns go off over the radio. You know, and they says, Fox shot one. They said, hey, you guys, Fox shot one. So everybody headed for a hole, you know, and we had this little Greek. His name was Demopolis. 
and he's heading for this culvert, and so is that billy goat. <laughs> and, the, and the billy goat and the, and the Demopolis both hit the culvert at the same time, and they're both kicking dirt trying to get in. And he's hollering, I'll shoot you, I'll shoot you, at the, at the goat, you know. And the goat finally won. The goat got in there first, and the shells hit just, just out in front of us, you know. But from then on, every time we, we'd uh, talk to to Demopolis, we'd say, hey, hey Creek, how you doing? You know, he get all burned up, you know, because he kidding him about their goat. <laughs> that's, but, pretty, uh, that's pretty cool. Oh, another funny thing happened. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I'll tell it. But, you know, our company got shot up bad on, on the 7th, 8th, 19th of September, and it pulled us back and we were guarding the command post in a small castle there in St. Oden, Rhode Island. That was a division headquarters. And they had us dug in a, in the front yard of a house across the road. We had a machine gun set up. There was a young couple just married living in that house with, with her parents. And they had a factory that made little made wooden shoes. So they made me a little one, and they signed it, and I carried it all. I still got it. Mm. But anyway, the people next door had a, had a cute little 14-year-old daughter. She was a little doll, you know, and everybody looked at her like a kid's sister. Mm -hmm. She wanted to do something nice for us, so she invited six of us to come over there, and she wanted to sing for us. So we, she sang, we went over there, and she sang Lily Marlene, beautiful voice, you know, and when she got done, we all cheered, and she said, I thank you for the clap. And she couldn't figure what she said wrong, or everybody <laughs> cracked up. But, uh, that was another little thing that was, you know, little little sidelines that uh, keeps you sane, more or less. Yeah, most definitely. Hey, we've got one. We've got time for one more story about Market Garden. What what else uh, comes to mind, Dan McBride? Well, well you know, we was on another outpost one time. A guy by the name of Jacobson and me. We sit in the farmer's yard. And we get British rations, you know, and they they were so bad that if I had a dog to eat it, I'd shoot the dog. You know, <laughs> oh, they were horrible. You know, we had to cook them for four hours in order to eat them. And we had this pot going. He had a machine gun dug it in the in his farmer's yard, and they got look there. There's a whole bunch of white legger and chickens running around. See, my buddy Jake says, "Do you like chickens?" I say, "Yeah, I kind of like chickens." So he had a he had a P-38 pistol, and I had a 45, and we both shot a chicken, you know, and he picked them, had the white feathers all over the place, looked like a snowstorm, see, and we had this chicken foot sticking out of the pot, and this farmer was just raising hell, see, and so he went back and got our, co our commander, Lieutenant Downey, Lieutenant Downey come up and said, this guy claims you're, you're eating, you're killing some of these chickens, I looked at Jake, you know, I said, do you see any chickens? He said, no, I ain't seen no chickens. Here, here we got feathers sticking on us and the chicken feet sticking out of the pot, you know, and feathers all over the place. And we said, no, we ain't seen no chickens. So he told the farmer to buzz off, and he took off. And when he got back, he got on the phone and said, hey, guys, when that's done, give me a call. <laughs> but, well, were, you guys, were you guys hungry a lot? Always. Always hungry. Always hungry, always wet, always scared. Yeah. Anybody that says they wasn't, wasn't there. Believe me. I always thought I knew what fear was, but uh, I found out there's new, new grades of it. How did you address but, that, Dan McBride? How did you address that fear? How was it just? How did you Get address that? that? Uniform done. Yeah, no, no. How did you address that? When you felt that fear, what went through your mind? How did you get through that? Oh, you just... Uh, Take as it comes, you know, and I mean, you just, uh, uh, one thing I never could figure, you know, it'd be a hell of a battle, you know, and I look around and some of my buddies are dead and the dead germs lay around and I ain't hurt. I wondered, now why? And it just went on time and time again, you know, and I always managed to come out on top, you know, and I wonder, you know, sooner or later, I'm going to get it. That's what I should figure it. Then I got to the feeling if I'm going to get hit, killed in this war, let it happen right now and get it over with, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, luckily, it didn't, didn't happen. But uh, it's, uh, it's, it was weird. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's got to be. But, yeah. You know, when you get in a real 
real battle. I mean, when they're right down to nitty-gritty, you know, everything appears to sl- move in slow motion. I've heard that. Because your adrenaline got you, your body so speeded up that everything else seems slow, you know. And then when it's over, the reaction sets in. Yeah. But uh, during a battle, it, it's more like a kaleidoscope. Everything all mixed together, you know. Yeah. That is, I've heard over, that. You sit there wondering what happened. <laughs> I, I'm sure. I, I've but, heard uh, that. Yeah. 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 It, uh, it, it, I hope just nobody ever has to go through it again. I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, yeah. What you guys did is, is amazing. Dan McBride, let's go to break. Uh, when we come back, let's talk about Bastogne and then also the end of the war. So this is Kim Munson with the Americhicks World War II Project. I'm talking with World War II veteran. Dan McBride, 101st Airborne, uh, 502nd Parachute Infantry Regiment, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. These shows are archived there as well as uh, check out my Facebook and Twitter. I'm AmeriChicks there as well. Thrilled to be doing this World War II Project. This uh, this show precipitated from a trip that I took with a group back in 2016 to Normandy with four D-Day veterans. We came back realizing we need to capture these stories. And what a story we're hearing today. We have on the line with us Dan McBride. Uh, he'll be 95 here in a couple of days. Your birthday's April 9th, right? Right. Okay. Right. Happy birthday to you on that. And you're one of the Screaming Eagles, part of the 101st Airborne 502nd Parachute Infantry Regiment. You jumped in at, at uh, Normandy. Uh, we heard that story in the first segment and then jumped in at Market Garden in Holland. We just heard that story. Now, Bastogne, Battle of the Bulge. How did you get from Market Garden to Battle of the Bulge? Well, they, when they finally relieved us, they come back. We came back to Mormillon, France, and there was only a few guys. You know, the original ones left. You know, and we had a bunch of replacements. We didn't get to know their names hardly yet. You know, they took the cast off my leg from from Holland. They took that off on the 10th of December. The Germans broke through on the 16th, and they took and stuck us. It woke us up in the morning of the 17th, and they said, everybody get up and, and pack your seaborne rolls. We're moving out. If you got a weapon, bring it. If you haven't, grab one at the supply room. So I went out, and they got on these cattle trucks, you know, those open trucks, a semi. Mm-hmm. And they took off, and we're, we're heading one way, and all the traffic's coming the other way, see? And we're heading against the traffic. And I thought, you know, the rumor started, these guys were, we were heading back to the States to sell war bonds. That's what we thought, because we're going against the traffic, see? We didn't realize that these guys are all retreating, and we're moving up. Wow. See? Well, they drove all night, wide open, you know? And it was the cold, wasn't it? It was. And we stopped, and there was snow on the ground. Mm-hmm. So the whole convoy stopped, and... And uh, they called the officers up to the head of the con- convoy, and then they come back. And they said, well, the Germans broke through. we got to hold this place. And the guy says, what, what place is this? And he said, I don't know, some place in Belgium. And that's rolling hilly country, you know. And I looked behind where we could just come in. It's way back on the horizon. You could see a line of, a line of trucks or tanks. And I said, hey, you got a lot of company. And he looked at them with binoculars, you know, and they had all big black crosses on the side of them. They come across the road. We just came in. So we were surrounded right then. Didn't even realize it, see. Then he marches down through the town of Bastogne and up one of the north edge of it. There's a little uh, place called Longchamps. It's right along a ridge up north of Bastogne, the farthest north part of the of the, so, you know, that's a perimeter. And he dug in, and I, I dug in a machine gun line right alongside the road to come over the hill, and behind it, there was a blown-out house that had a hedge in front, and I was right behind the hedge alongside the road and had the machine gun dug in there. And there we stayed, and it got cold, and I mean cold. We didn't have no winter clothes whatsoever. Didn't even have any long underwear. You know, and the temperature got down, the first day it got down about zero, and the next day it was down below that, and the following day it was down lower than that yet. 
and we're trying to keep warm. We, you know, we go in these different houses and see if you can find any newspapers. We wrinkle them up and stick them down inside our clothes to, for a little insulation. And every once in a while, we get a little German attack. They're probing attacks to find out where everybody was, you know. And and uh, we had one on Christmas Day. It was pretty pretty stiff there. We knocked out a couple of tanks and killed about 30 Germans, and they got some of us. But anyway, there was a guy, uh, his name was Vince Sperenza. He was in the 501. And they had a battle on, the, on Christmas Day in his area. And one uh, one of his buddies was wounded. He had about 15 wounded back in a, in a house. So he went back to see his buddy after the battle was over. See? And he, when he went in, there was about 15 guys in there, and they, they're all complaining they don't have anything to drink because their canteens are froze solid, you know. So Vince, he's going to be a good guy. He's going to find him something to drink. So he found this tavern that had the front wall blowed out, and he went in. There was a big wooden barrel, a big wooden keg in there with a wooden tap on it, and he turned it, and the beer came out. So he pulled his steel helmet off, filled it up with beer, took it back and was giving it to you guys, see. Well, he ran out, so he'd go back and get some more. So he filled the helmet up again. And this time they got back by the door, and there was a med regimental surgeon showed up. And he says, what are you doing? He said, well, i just bring some beer for the guys. He, the, the surgeon said, gee, you give that to anybody with a belly wound, you'll have to kill them. Put that helmet on, soldier. So he put the helmet on, it was full of beer. You know, and he ended up getting dry, drenched with beer all the way down. Well, anyway, that story went around. After the war, the brewery in St. in Bastogne took a made a special beer. They call it airborne beer. It's got a picture of a guy on the on the label. It's a picture of a guy with a helmet full of beer and a GI uniform, and they sell you a little ceramic helmet to drink it out of. <laughs> and I got the helmet and the beer both right in my house. But anyhow, uh, we had several probing attacks. And on Christmas Day, General McCullough sent an order, a, a, a letter around to everybody saying Merry Christmas and say, what's merry about it? We're surrounded by seven German divisions. <laughs> we repel attacks from the north, south, east, and west. We're cold, hungry, away from home. But we're given the the country of Merry Christmas by you know, keeping the Germans, you know, from using the town of Bastogne. The reason Bastogne was so important, there was seven roads crossed in Bastogne, and there's all hilly country around it, so the only place the tanks could go was up the road. And we held the roads for eight days before anybody broke through to us. And when they did break through to us, the only thing they did is bring us ammunition and food and took off, we went into the attack. We had 13 men left in our company, and we were attacking. And this went on until the 17th of January. We were supposed to be attacking a little town of Bouncy, you know, and, and uh, there was a railroad underpass in that town. We was on a hill up above the town, and the, the town was down the valley, and this railroad had this underpass, and a German tank would pull into that underpass and fire up the hill. See, well, it's late in the afternoon. We don't have any anything to fight the tank with, and it's too late in the day to call in for air support, so they told us to dig in along the, along the top of the ridge. So I dug my hole deep enough where I could get sit down with my knees up and my head would be below the surface, and I'm trying to eat a frozen K-ration, and it's getting dark. And that tank come out and fired a blast and hit the tree right next to me, blew the top of the tree out, and the concussion stung me. He you know, I mean, numbed me. And I was so cold I couldn't feel anything anyway, you know. Mm -hmm. And I scraped the fine needles off the frozen K-Rash, and I started gnawing away on that again. And the Lieutenant Downey come crawling over and says, Hey, Mac, we got some water. You better get it before it freezes. See, so I got up out of the hole and I went flat on my face. I couldn't straighten my right leg out. And I wondered, what the heck? Yeah, I looked down, there's a splinter of steel sticking out of my knee. Mm. About, oh, I'd say about five inches of it sticking out of my knee. And it was like a, like a long sliver, about like a spike. But it went in underneath the kneecap and right into the joint. And I had my knee locked. I couldn't move it.
Wow. So I reached down with both hands, I give it a yank, and I got it out. Ugh. And believe me, that smarted. I bet that smarted. Yeah. <laughs> Lieutenant Downey says, uh, can you walk on it? I said, I don't know. I tried. I found out if I didn't bend my knee, I could walk on it. He said, there's a first aid station back over the hill. See if you can get to it. So I staggered up over the hill and it got down there. There's an old shed with a lantern hanging in it. And there was one guy there with the whole side of his face gone, his eyeball hanging out. And then another guy with his arm hanging by a little piece of meat. And I looked at that little hole in my knee and I said, ah, the hell with it. And I went back up, hitchhiked back, I mean, you know, hiked back up on the hill. By that time, by full dark, so the guys moved down into that town. And I followed them down in. And. We got down there, and we had the whole 3rd Platoon of F Company. was consisted of four men. I was a, I was a senior one, so I was a sergeant. And they had a guy by the name of Brooks had a machine gun. And a guy by the name of Robinson and another guy by the name of Green. Both had M1 rifles. And that was the whole 3rd Platoon of F Company, 502. Wow. And Lieutenant Downey said, well, we're going to get relieved. So this infantry outfit come over here, just right over from the States, you know, and, and uh, we hadn't had our clothes off or shaved or even washed your face in a month now, you know, we were pretty ripe, you yeah. know. And we're sitting there, and the helmet's all black from trying to cook in them, and this lieutenant come crawling up, you know, in his real nice shiny bars and nice clean uniform, and he says, uh, I'm looking for a third platoon of F Company. I said, right here. He says, where are your positions? I says, right here. He says, where's the rest of your men? I said, there ain't no rest. It's us. So they come over with 60 men, two light machine guns and a heavy machine gun, a 37-millimeter anti-tank gun, and 60 men to relieve four of us. We got pulled back, and we finally got a chance to take a bath. Imagine that after, after a month. I can't imagine. So okay, we we had to stand the upwind from each other. I bet. Would, well, that's one thing. I'm <laughs> thinking that the Germans could probably smell you guys if you were close to. Yeah, each other. they could. Well, we could smell them too. Okay. Okay. They always smell like like uh, moldy leather. Okay. Because all their all their equipment was horsehide, you know. Okay. Huh. And they could smell them. Interesting. Um, uh, Bastone, what about the story of General McAuliffe? Uh, did you had you heard that story about when he was asked to surrender? Pardon? The story about General McAuliffe when the Germans uh, sent the note for him to surrender. Oh yeah, yeah. They they sent this uh, major and a lieutenant and a couple of listed men with a white flag. They come up in a three seven three twenty seventh glider artillery outfit. And, and they they wanted us to surrender. They gave us this note to say, you know, you were surrounded by seven German divisions, you know, elements of nine German divisions, including an anti-aircraft battalion and two Panzer Division armored uh, infantry. And you, you got two hours for delivering this note to surrender or... We, uh, you will be annihilated, and that's not good for all the, you know, it uh, endangers the local civilians and all that kind of stuff, you know. And woman, uh, where I heard the story, well, uh, McAuliffe, he says, uh, I don't know what to tell him. When he read it, he says, Ah, oh, nuts like that. You know, he very religious man, by the way. And uh, he says, well, How am I supposed to answer this guy? And when I Colonel Ewell, he says, well, why don't you just, that first word you said is just about as good as anything. And he said, what was that? And he said, you said nuts. He said, okay. So he put it down to the German commander, nuts, the American commander. You know, and he handed the German. He said, what's this just nuts? You know, the guy says, well, in plain English means go to hell. <laughs> you know, and so they pulled back and the music started again. But uh, we beat him off. Yeah. But, it was pretty sticky there for a while, I'll tell you. Um, I we know. We lost 45 men one day on January 3rd. Our company lost 45 men. Mm. And the Germans lost about 300. And when they ended up, when, when the shooting ended, there was a knocked-out tank exactly 30 yards in front of my machine gun hole. And my buddy, a guy by the name of Blassengame, got that bank tank and two others with a bazooka. 
uh, it was it was kind of close. Okay. Yeah, you guys are famous for that. You're you're famous for that. We have just a few more minutes. Uh, At the end of the war, you ended up at uh, Hitler's hideout. How how did that happen? Yeah, well, we took him, went through. Well, first they took us up on a on the Rhine River up by Cologne for a rest. Then they took they heard the Germans would go break through and ask that's rain, so they stuck us down there. When that didn't occur, then we went through southern Germany, going up the Autobahn. We liberated five different prison camps and took you know a few towns in there. In fact, we took one town of, of Eisenach, Germany, on the 12th of February. And a German kid come out, and he says, uh, Roosevelt is kaput. You know, in other words, Roosevelt dead. Mm-hmm. He said, oh, you're crazy. He said, yeah, no kidding. Roosevelt is kaput. And we found out later that he had died that day. And how that German kid knew about it, we didn't know. Hmm. Anyway, we entered, we entered the town of Berchtesgaden, the day the war ended. We didn't know it ended. We ended. We ran through the town, and we had a roadblock set up. And we had a machine gun set up, and a guy by the name of Todd from West Virginia. Uh, him and I were on the gun, and we saw somebody come walking up the road, smoking a cigarette at night in the daylight, you know, at nighttime, smoking a cigarette right out in the open. He said, put that damn thing out. And he said, the war's over. I said, all right, you're crazy. He said, yeah, no kidding, it's over. I looked at my buddy, and he looked at me, and I said, what do we do now? You know, I didn't didn't have any idea that I was ever going to live through it, so I had no further plans going. And the first thing to come to my mind, I'll be able to see my family again. Oh. You know, and I'll be able to see the states again. It got to the place, got to, with us, the United States was just something we dreamed about in the past, you know, but now we're going to be able to go back and see it. You know, it was just like being starting over again. Yeah. You know what I mean? And when you got back to the States, uh, did you go into New York Harbor? Yeah, I went. I got back, and uh, we got discharged the 22nd of September of 45. I went on the police force my hometown and on October 12th. I was in there for three years. I got tired of fighting with drunks and lawyers in that, in that, in that order. And uh, I re-enlisted in the 82nd, the 82nd Airborne, and I was on an exhibition team. We used to go around these different army camps making parachute jumps to try to get sucker uh, volunteers for the Airborne. <laughs> and uh, I broke my ankle for the third time, so I got got discharged with that. And I went to work on the, on the railroad and worked there for 30 years along the shore of Lake Erie. Okay. On freight trains. Wow. I retired in 1981, tied a snow shovel on the front of a truck, and when somebody says, what's that? That's where I'm going to stay. Uh I ended up in Silver City, New Mexico, and I don't have to go to heaven because I'm already living there. Ah, okay. Hey, Dan McBride, we are just about out of time. This has been an absolutely fabulous conversation. I thank you so much. I thank you for your service, and I thank you for sharing your story with me and with my listeners. Uh, We just really, really appreciate it. So thank you. Well, thank you, ma'am, very much. And I'm glad to be able to do it because I'd like to... I hope that nobody ever has to do this again. Well, that that is for sure. So Dan McBride, World War II veteran, 101st Airborne, 502nd Parachute Infantry Regiment. Thank you, and God bless you, and God bless America. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks signing off, and with same time, same place next week. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the AmeriChick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.